Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Dear people of God, a few weeks ago I went down to Wayne State University Philosophy Department to hear a debate between a theist and an atheist about the existence of God. The atheist had only one argument, the problem of suffering in the world. How can a good and powerful God permit suffering, he asked. What was interesting to me is that the Christian philosopher didn't seem to even want to address this question. He avoided the problem of suffering. He preferred instead to offer abstract philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Now this is striking to me for a couple of reasons. One is that when you're in the middle of suffering, the thing that is going to cause doubt is generally not an absence of a good rational argument. But it's also striking to me because as you look at the scriptures, while there might be many Christians who want to argue, or rather who wanted to avoid the argument or the question of suffering, the scriptures themselves face it full on. Scripture is not in denial about the reality of suffering in the world. In fact, suffering seems to be one primary focus of Scripture. Job says, Man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. Suffering is part of the human experience. And Christianity, if we take it seriously, doesn't turn a blind eye to this fact. Eugene Peterson writes, To be human is to be in trouble. A Christian person is a person who decides to face and live through this trouble. If we do not make that decision, we are endangered on every side. A man or woman of faith who fails to acknowledge or deal with suffering becomes at last either a cynic, a melancholic, or a suicide. The story of Scripture begins with suffering, the introduction of suffering into the world. In the first chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve, we're told, turned their backs on God's covenant. And it is this act that introduced suffering into the human race. But God promised then and there that through the seed of woman, he would crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent would strike at the heel of the woman's seed he would be defeated. God promises an end to suffering. But he does so, not in abstraction, not from a distance. God promises to end suffering by entering into the fray, by taking suffering upon himself, by sharing it with humanity. And in the process, suffering becomes redemptive. George MacDonald put it this way, the Son of God suffered unto death, 
not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his, that their suffering might be redemptive. So in Christ, we're given meaning for suffering and the hope for an end to it. And this is true even when we don't understand it, even when we don't comprehend why we're suffering. The meaning in Christianity is not found in our theories about suffering. The meaning for suffering is found in the person of Jesus Christ, to whom we cling. The temptation is always there for us to embrace a gospel that denies suffering. We hear things like, if you're a good Christian, you won't have to suffer disease or poverty or trouble. God takes care of his kids. Jesus will magically make it all go away. But this is a false gospel. Henri Nouwen wrote, Many people suffer because of the false supposition on which they have based their lives. This supposition is that there should be no fear or loneliness, no confusion or doubt. But these sufferings can only be dealt with creatively when they're understood as wounds integral to our human condition. Therefore, ministry is a very confronting service. It does not allow people to live with illusions of immortality or wholeness. It keeps reminding others that they are mortal, that they are broken, but that with that recognition of this condition, our liberation can start. Christian minister John Claypool describes the suffering of his own daughter who had been diagnosed with leukemia and was in a tremendous amount of pain. One night in the hospital, she asked him, Daddy, when will my pain go away? And John said, Honey, we're doing everything we can do to get rid of it. His daughter asked, Daddy, you've asked God when my leukemia will go away. What did he say? And Claypool writes that he didn't know what to say to her. What do you say to a little girl when God seems as if he's not listening? What do you say when the heavens seem silent? Job again wrote in the Old Testament, I go east, but God is not there. I go west, but I cannot find him. I do not see him in the north, for he is hidden. I turn to the south, but he is silent. One of the mistakes that we make in reading the Bible is that we assume that the Bible is a story about people who always get what they ask for, that the biblical world is filled with everyday miracles, that God carried on daily conversations with every character in the Bible, and that he instantly and supernaturally fixed every problem they had. Then we look at our own lives and we wonder, what about me? Where's God when I get myself into deep water? Why is it that I don't get a miracle every day? Why is it that in my life often God seems silent? We're regularly told by some preachers that if we are right with God, then we can expect a miracle every day. Something magical around every corner that we could hear the voice of God every time we demand it. And then it's easy for us to fall into despair 
because our lives simply don't look that way. And the only conclusion that we can draw is that we must be spiritually inferior to those people, those people who seem to have God on a leash, performing tricks for them on command. But C.S. Lewis points out that this expectation that truly spiritual people get miracles and revelations from God all the time is based on a fundamental misreading of Scripture. If you read the book of Acts, for example, it gives you the impression that the early church had constant miraculous signs until you're reminded that the events of the book cover the highlights of nearly four decades of church life, spanning the entire Roman Empire. Lewis says that for most of us, witnessing a miracle is a lot like witnessing a truly historic event, the coronation of a king or the assassination of a president. These things come around just a few times in a lifetime. The trick of Christian faithfulness is not learning to manipulate God to perform miracles on command. The trick of Christian faithfulness is learning to keep faith in God between the miracles during those times when God's speech is not forthcoming, trusting God, waiting for the Lord. Christians can endure suffering and even the silence of God, not because we're guaranteed immediate miraculous solutions to every problem. Christians can endure suffering and silence because we trust the character of God the God who promises one day to finally crush the head of the serpent. Abram and Sarai are good examples of this principle. It would also be easy to forget that these chapters in Genesis cover several decades in the life of this couple. It was about 25 years ago that Sarai and Abram were asked to uproot themselves from their home, from the prosperous center of civilization in Chaldea, and live as wandering nomads in search of the promise of God. Imagine the faith involved when Abram comes home to Sarai and says, Honey, the Lord wants us to leave our nice house in the city to go live in a tent like gypsies. In fact, we're going to a land that we will never possess. So they packed up and moved. Abram, a mere youth at 75, and his young bride Sarai, who is in her mid-60s, off to start over to start a new family. Then a decade passes. A decade of silence. Surely, Abram and Sarai are wondering why God had dragged them out of the desert ten years earlier. But no explanation is given. Abram starts to think that the whole family inheritance is going to go to their servants. Then finally, one starry night, God speaks to Abram again. Look up and count the stars, Abram, if you're able to do so. This is how numerous your descendants will be. So Abram went home and shared the news with his wife, Sarai. And they both shared a bottle of Geritol and went to bed. 
You see, in some senses, making this kind of promise just makes things worse. If they'd never been given the promise in the first place, then their hopes would never be dashed. The mantra of the pessimist is, those who expect nothing will never be disappointed. It's the time waiting that makes the pain more acute, makes it ache all the more. I read in Reader's Digest the account of a four-year-old boy who's traveling with his mother, and like children are wont to do, he's constantly asking the same question over and over again. Are we there yet? When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? Finally, the mother gets so irritated that she says, we have 90 more miles to go, so don't ask me again when we're going to get there. The boy fell silent for a long time and then timidly asked, Mom, will I still be four when we get there? (laughs) The passage of time is relative, but it's part of what makes suffering so difficult, especially when God is silent. And Sarai has begun to think that maybe God needs just a little bit of help. After all, she's not getting any younger. So she decides to take matters into her own hands. Her intention is to make good on God's promise. So she asks her husband to sleep with the Egyptian maid. And she bore him a son named Ishmael. Now you can read the story yourself to find out how the story turns out. But let's just say it becomes a sordid soap opera. It's a mess. St. Augustine once wrote that God often grants in his wrath what he denies in his mercy. It's not always good to get what you want, especially when you take matters into your own hands. But sometimes when God remains silent, we're tempted to force God's hand to act, and the results are seldom pleasant. The young girl who, disregarding the wisdom of family and friends, out of desperation to be married, chooses to run away with the guy on the motorcycle. The young man who, out of a strong desire to be in ministry, decides to cheat on his seminary exams. In the end, the sin is a failure to believe that God has good intentions for us. A failure to believe that God is powerful enough to do anything about it that he needs our help. As I said a few months back as we were studying Hebrews, this is deciding to ad-lib our own story because we no longer believe that God who wrote the story knows what he's doing. When we suffer for long periods of time with no answers and no relief in sight, we can come to think that God is simply being mean, Or maybe he just doesn't care. Julian of Norwich once said, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few of them. It's very difficult for us to appreciate that there is any purpose in our suffering or that our suffering could somehow be redemptive. That suffering might be necessary for God to make us into what he wants us to be. The story of Harold Wilk, who was born with no arms 
he talks about the time when he was a preschooler and he was struggling to get his shirt over his head onto his shoulders. He said, I was grunting and sweating and my mother just stood there and watched. A relative turned to his mother and said, Ida, why don't you help the child? And his mother responded through gritted teeth and tears, I am helping him. We like to tell ourselves that God helps those who help themselves because that gives us a sense of control, a sense of self-importance. But often the true act of faith is to let God act. Jacques Ellul says the person of hope is the person who waits even when God is silent. So 13 more years pass. Ishmael is a teenager. And despite all the family trouble, everybody seems to have come to think that Ishmael, Abraham's, Abram's son through Hagar the maid, would become the heir of the family fortune. 13 years. And God speaks again. He comes to Abram and Sarai, who are now both in their 90s. God tells Abram, I will make you very fertile. You will be the father of many nations. And Abram said, I know. I have my son Ishmael. We've already done the hard work for you. But God interrupts. No, not through Ishmael. Ishmael will have his blessings. He will become the father of many nations. But I intend to give you a son through your wife, Sarai. And the kings of many people will come from him. And Abram, the man of faith that he is, fell down on his face and laughed right there in front of God. But God was serious. And to seal the deal, God gave Abram the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And everybody got, good, got new names. Abram became Abraham, which means the father of many nations. Sarai becomes Sarah, which means queen, because she would become the mother of kings. And even God took on a new name. He said, the name I give you is El Shaddai, God all-powerful, for with God nothing is impossible. Throughout history, there's been a debate about whether God has a sense of humor. Greek philosopher Plato thought that humor was subversive, that laughter could seriously undermine someone else's authority. Fourth century theologian John Chrysostom declared authoritatively that Jesus never laughed and the church has tended to believe him. In the 1400s, the Council of Constance rebuked any priest or monk who spoke jocular words such as to provoke laughter. To tell us, to tell a joke in a sermon could lead to excommunication. I've taken risks before. (laughs) 
I think such thinking is seriously misguided. I find it very difficult to read Scripture and conclude that God lacks a sense of humor. I find it very difficult to look in the mirror and believe that God lacks a sense of humor. God knows full well that coming to 99-year-old Abram and 90-year-old Sarai and promising them a baby is laughable. And notice that God doesn't rebuke Abram for his laughter. He just lets him share the joke. Imagine the laughter again when Abram comes home and says to his neighbors, from now on, I want you to call me the father of many nations and call my wife Queenie. In today's scripture text, the three visitors show up at the tent of Sarah and Abraham. And one of these visitors, we're told, is God. And the news gets shared. Apparently, Abraham didn't tell Sarah. And now Sarah gets a good laugh. The divine visitor says, Within a year, I will return, and your wife Sarah will have a baby boy. And hearing the news through the tent flap, Sarah laughs to herself. How could a worn-out woman like me have a baby? And my husband is so old. And when Sarah is confronted by the visitor, why did you laugh? Sarah is shocked, and she denies it. Oh, I didn't laugh. And the Lord replies with good humor, Oh, yes, you did. Barbara Brown Taylor writes, For two dozen years, Abraham and Sarah lived on nothing more than a promise. And then one spring morning of Sarah's 90th year, she came to her husband, drying her hands on her dress, and said with stars in her eyes, Abraham, I have something to tell you. When the child of promise is finally born, everybody has a good laugh. According to the command of God, Sarah calls the son Isaac, which means laughter. Sarah declares, God has brought me laughter, and all who hear about it will laugh with me. For who would have dreamed that I would ever have a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. When we read the biblical story as modern people, we tend to be repelled by the patriarchalism of the culture. But a closer and more faithful look at Scripture reveals a deeper message of hope for women and for all people. Second Timothy reminds us that women will be saved through the childbirth. And the story of Sarah assures us that this is true. The story begins with God talking to Abraham. Sarah is somewhere out on the margins. But God is in the business of drawing people in from the margins. And by story's end, Sarah is at the center. It's through her that God will accomplish the blessing of all nations. It's through her 
that the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. By taking this barren, elderly woman, a woman whose faith was surely lagging, and giving her life where there was no hope for life, God begins to show that he is El Shaddai, the God for whom nothing is impossible. I know that for long periods of time in life, years, sometimes decades, it seems that God is silent. There seems to be no answer to the human predicament, no solution to the problem of evil in the world. But the promise is that God will speak his word into the silence. When the fullness of time has come, God sends forth his son into the world. Through the line of Sarah, through the seed of woman, God will bring laughter to the whole world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.